0: the biggest idea that I have is that the most important contribution that the University of Manitoba can make to our society at this point in time is to ground medical education and really all health professional education in anti-racism.
1: Welcome back to another episode of What's the Big Idea? Featuring University of Manitoba President Michael Benarash in conversation with some of today's Big thinkers. Together they unpack the big idea their work explores. We'll continue to hear from an exciting and diverse array of voices from the UM community, contributing to the cultural, social, and economic well being of the people of Manitoba, Canada, and the world. In today's episode, Michael speaks with Vice Dean of Indigenous Health, Social Justice, and Anti Racism at the Rady Faculty of Health Sciences, Dr. Marsha Anderson. Dr. Anderson's distinguished career championing health equity among Black, Indigenous, and racialized communities, particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic, earned her the prestigious 2022 Physician of the Year Award from Doctors Manitoba. Just reflecting back on the last two years, we recognize certainly as an
0: organization who was actually running into the emergency and who was running away from the emergency. And so I certainly commend and honor and value and respect Dr. Anderson for coming to us in the middle of an emergency and wanting to
1: to step up. She's been a remarkable leader around all of our EDI activities. She's remarkably committed to Indigenous communities. And I think she has
2: all the facilities it takes to really move this agenda forward.
1: And through her listening and through her patience, has really, really made a huge difference, as well as uh, just genuinely being a very strong Indigenous woman who is using
0: her gifts and sharing it with her community. And we are so, so proud that we had the
1: pleasure to cross her path.
2: Dr. Anderson, Marsha thanks for sitting down with me today. Your leadership at the Rady Faculty of Health Sciences and in our province has truly been outstanding. You're so deserving of all the awards and recognitions that you've received recently. And I'm really grateful that we have this opportunity to sit down today and discuss your work. And so I want to begin by asking you to answer kind of the central question of this podcast. What's your big idea?
0: Well, thank you for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to really kind of crystallize some thoughts around this. And the most important contribution that the U of M can make to society at this time is to ground medical education and really all health professional education in anti-racism.
2: And so on that point, you've, you've played a really critical lead role in Manitoba's pandemic response including leveraging public health data, should show how the illness was disproportionately impacting Black, Indigenous, and racialized communities. Mm-hmm. What did the pandemic teach you about racism in healthcare?
0: What the pandemic further showed, or almost helped me to see in deeper ways, was... Actually, how much racism impacts people's health before they hit the healthcare care system? Doors. We've known for a long time from different studies that Indigenous people have been disproportionately impacted by previous pandemics, going back to the time of the Spanish flu, certainly the situation here with H1N1. So we were anticipating that. And then there were lots of calls from diverse communities, especially from Black communities and Black health professionals, to ensure we had the ability to desegregate data. The biggest lesson through that for me was how important having data in real time was to influence decision-making. And it's not an easy win. There's still a lot of background, you know, evidence review, data synthesis, and advocacy that goes into ensuring that that data is used appropriately and effectively to influence decision-making. But in the absence of data, that doesn't start at all. And so when we think about racism in the healthcare system, again, we have to think about if we want to address systemic racism in healthcare, if we want to reduce racial health care gaps and racial health gaps, what's the data that we need to drive decision-making there too?
2: And what was the data showing you that, that had such an impact on mm-hmm. our provincial response?
0: Sure. So there was a few key findings that I'll, I'll highlight for this. So first of all, for First Nations people, infection rates were higher, severe outcome rates were higher, and they occurred at significantly younger ages than in the general population. So also, in, when we have to combine the data for all diverse BIPOC communities because of statistical power and, and things like that, recognizing that there's a lot of heterogeneity or difference between diverse BIPOC communities. So I just want to say that first. But that same pattern that was seen in First Nations was also seen in BIPOC communities when we look there, higher case burden, higher case severe outcome rates, and those severe outcomes occur at much younger ages. Now, if we didn't have that data, we wouldn't have been able to do things such as applying an age-based differential for First Nations people in the vaccine rollout, where we use that data to successfully advocate to make the vaccine available at age 55 for First Nations people, for example, when it was available at age 75 for the rest of Manitoba.
2: And we see that even carrying on now where the response of public health is is in the way that you've just discussed. So that it obviously had a very big impact during the pandemic. And have you observed other gaps in care or different health outcomes for racialized groups that you think are also important at this stage of discussion?
0: Absolutely. We don't currently have the data available in Manitoba to regularly disaggregate other health outcomes or health care quality by race. But there is a huge literature base in the academic and published literature which shows significant health care gaps by race. And so just a few examples that I would give. So for example, First Nations people are less likely to receive an angiogram after being admitted to hospital with a myocardial infarction within a 24 hour period. Indigenous people are less likely to get kidney transplants than non-Indigenous people. Black people receive less adequate pain control than white people in emergency rooms, and that's true for both children and adults. So a consistent pattern of unequal care by race on both sides of the border. I know sometimes people want to pretend like racism only happens south of the border. Very clearly not the case. But the other piece that I want to highlight is that it's not like medical students, nurses, doctors are not also experiencing racism in that same environment. This is not just a problem for patients. Racialized medical students experience racism at very high levels. There is one study that showed 30 out of 31 black medical students experienced racism. A recent study out of Ontario showed that 80% of Black nurses experience racism in the work environment. And a recent study of surgery and anesthesiology in the US showed well over 80% of racialized surgeons and anesthesiologists experience racism. So it's a problem for patients and racialized healthcare professionals alike.
2: So something systemic in the the system. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Pervasive, systemic, and harmful.
2: And then it sounds like We've got a lot of work to do in terms of collecting the appropriate data uh, Mm -hmm. here in the province. I mean, clearly, you you know, you brought one example forward which influenced the response, but clearly that there's a Mm -hmm. need for better data collection in order to be able to make those data-informed responses.
0: Absolutely. You know that old maxim, what gets measured gets done. Mm. We need the data so that we can actually see Particularly doctors hang on to a belief that they treat everybody equally, despite all available evidence to the contrary in the published literature. So we do need that data here as well so that we can actually see the impacts of systemic racism. And like I mentioned, really in real time, but also when we do interventions, educational, policy, programmatic interventions, we have to be able to measure if they worked so that we can either adjust course or carry on and scale up.
2: So you mentioned that the studies show that clearly there's a lot of racism, even within the profession. And you've spoken previously about racism that you encountered Mm -hmm. in the late 90s and early 2000s. What was your experience as a medical student? And how would you describe the culture of health sciences now? So...
0: I'll link my answer to those two questions together with just one example. So first of all, I experienced a lot of racism. I observed a lot, which impacts me personally. And then there were the things that were directly said to me as a first nations learner so one example that i would give is there was a time when i was a medical student on my obstetrics rotation not very far from here where the senior obstetrics resident said in one of the rooms on the ward where our team was gathered that the best thing for canada would be if native people stopped reproducing so at that time and in the power differentials uh, first of all Like I was both shocked and hurt because clearly that statement was directed at me and felt pretty powerless to do anything about it. So recently... I would highlight how that notion continues in the recent release of the Senate report investigating forced and coerced sterilization of Indigenous women. Clearly those two things are linked, right? And then if you were to read the inquest report into the horrific death of Joyce Echequan a Cree woman from Quebec, one of the things that nurses in that area were observed to say Witnesses reported, one of the nurses said that it was a relief she finally died because all Native women are good for is getting stuffed with children and then taxpayers have to pay for them. So clearly that exact same belief is still being replicated and transmitted.
2: Right, so something you experienced early on and Mm -hmm. and we're still hearing it today. Mm -hmm. And you started with your big idea of being, you know, grounding uh, mm-hmm. medical education and in, in anti-racism. Do you think we've made progress over time?
0: I would say we're in early stages of some progress. And I think it's important that we have a pretty clear kind of understanding of how anti-racist change happens, which is that it is generational work. There are people who came before us who did really important work, who had excellent scholarship and writing that we learn from and try to build on in what is our piece of the work. And so I don't expect we're going to solve this during the course of my career. What I hope is that we can build some really solid foundations and a common understanding of why this is the most important work we have to do and how we need to start doing it. So some of the progress that we have made, I would say, is that We have a fairly robust longitudinal Indigenous health course in the undergraduate medical education program, 70 hours. And then a couple of years ago, 2020 actually, in the Rady Faculty of Health Sciences, we passed a disruption of all forms of racism policy. Those are important milestones uh, that are steps in the journey. We're able to pass a policy like that based on at least a decade of work of normalizing conversations around racism, building a shared understanding of what racism is and how it operates here and in healthcare, and getting enough people to buy into the idea that when the vote came at Dean's Council and exec, that it was passed in favor.
2: Right, and I mean, my understanding is you did a lot of work (laughs) with that and that there were still challenges along the way.
0: There were challenges along the way, and you know, there's some things that I wouldn't do again. So, for example, I wouldn't send out a s- anonymous survey that invites open text comments back. That resulted in a lot of comments that were very difficult to read. Maybe were an important temperature check of the range of views and beliefs in, in the faculty, but it was harmful to do. And then the other thing that I would just note is maybe being a bit clear with the community early on a policy sets a standard and an expectation it doesn't complete the work so it doesn't mean the environment has changed automatically you know and then just the the last thing I'll say as it relates to medical education is Half of the years of undergraduate medical education, all of the years of postgraduate medical education, occur in spaces outside of the Bannatyne campus. And maybe an idea we might want to talk more about is what is the most important factors in what future physicians learn.
2: You've written that the curriculum for a physician goes way beyond the classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've talked about the conversations in the hallways, the relationship between the lead physician and the student Mm -hmm. and the conversations that they have. And so as a medical school, we can kind of, I guess, in some sense change what we teach in the classroom and Mm -hmm. what we do when students are in our buildings. But if it goes beyond that, and if you've talked about kind Mm of, you know, there's a generational changes that have to take place. How do we impact those that are no longer students at the school?
0: It's a great question. And I'll start again with just talking a tiny bit about our course in terms of getting people's heads around this, because recognizing not all the listeners are going to be that familiar with medical education, right? So I mentioned we have a 70-hour Indigenous Health longitudinal course. Once a medical student hits their clerkship years, the clinical teaching, that length of time is matched by, let's say, three call shifts. And three call shifts in a healthcare environment um, that as we've discussed previously is significantly impacted by systemic racism. And when we shift our thinking away from thinking about medical school curriculum as objectives, content, pedagogy, and examinations, and start thinking about the curriculum as everything that medical students see here and experience, Then we can see how what happens outside of the formal classroom and in the clinical environment, even the social media environment, becomes the vast majority of their learning. And the situation that we are in is that we have strong partnerships with the service delivery organizations and shared health. But we don't control the clinical environment, which forms a significant part of the milieu. And so the attending physicians who supervise medical students um, will all have some type of academic appointment with us. But the accountability for their clinical behavior, what their role modeling day to day actually goes through to the you know, chief medical officer in the service delivery organization. And so one of the first things that we need to really firmly establish is aligned policies and expectations for what those physicians are role modeling in the care environment that they observe. Because if they are not educated about racism and anti-racism, if they don't understand how racism operates in the clinical environment, if they can't understand how most of us as providers probably all of us as providers are actually participating in ways that aren't very visible to us they can't possibly be role modeling anti-racism
2: yeah and that of course goes beyond just your first four years absolutely right it's a lifelong Mm -hmm. Um, so i recently read an article that argued that wokeism (laughs) is a threat to medical education and puts patients at risk. Mm -hmm. Um, But can you respond to this idea of wokeism corrupting medical education and help Mm -hmm. us better understand how equity and anti-racism can actually improve our healthcare system?
0: Yeah. So this is a a growing, I would say, community or position of some physicians, both in our country and and south of the border. And it really is, I would say, rooted in resistance to anti-racism. It's often aligned with, for example, the backlash against critical race theory. Now, the problems I would have with that article is it makes some really false assumptions. And even in that title around endangering patients, it's like, well, which patients? Because there is a wealth of evidence that shows actually patients are already in danger in our current system with medical education as it has always been carried out in North America, right? It's not like we have a whole bunch of doctors who practice free of racism, and yet we have a huge amount of racism in our system. Those patients were at risk because of how we trained health professionals. So I would really challenge the idea that patients weren't in danger before, and I would push the authors and the physicians who are taking that stance to really clarify which positions do they feel are being put in danger now, right? Similarly, This idea that medical education wasn't corrupt before. Of course, medical education was biased before, right? And there is, again, a wealth of evidence that documents how the medical college admissions test is biased against low-income people, racialized people, people who live in rural areas, people who don't speak English as a first language, for example. And then we often layer that on with things like the multiple mini-interviews also showed to be racially biased, GPA assessments, which are tricky, but again, tons of educational literature around how racialized learners are graded lower, graded more harshly, right? And so we have these series of admissions tests or standards that are all known to be racially biased. So I don't accept the argument that highlighting how bias operates currently is... Wokeism or corrupting medical education, especially if we can consider that in the light of all the evidence around what a more diverse workforce brings. And in this context, I'll just share one example, which is the growing literature around how racial concordance between physician and patient results in a more trusting therapeutic relationship and improved healthcare quality.
2: And I think that your first point takes us back to those examples you gave of the emergency rooms for sterilization and. We often think of the status quo as kind of this, you know, um, that it's neutral in a sense, right? When, when in fact it might not be.
0: Oh, it definitely isn't. Yeah, <laughs> It's absolutely not neutral. I think color blindness just allows right. some of us to pretend that it is.
2: So for a university like the University of Manitoba, then, where we're committed to making this change is but we know that there's lots of work to do and we have a lot of work to do mm-hmm. uh, as an institution. What do you think we can do better?
0: Yeah, it's a it's a really important question. So a few of the things that we could do better, I will say it would be important to continue looking at our hiring processes. You know, I've had the privilege and opportunity to sit on a number of search committees for fairly senior positions. I would say I was pretty disappointed in the diversity of the applicant pool when we know there are actually quite a few and a growing number of highly qualified, particularly racialized women in academia across the country and I don't think we're seeing enough applications from there and I think we could really deeply reflect on why and I think we could again I I'm really data driven so I think we could really strengthen our data capture to help us evaluate those steps. So what's the diversity of our applicant pool and taking an intersectional approach where we are looking at racial, ethnic, or indigenous identity, gender identity, ability, multiple different factors that could serve as barrier and following that data through to who makes the shortlist and who gets offered and looking at career trajectory once in, right? So I think we have to take a much more data-driven hard look and continuous look at those senior leadership levels and hiring processes. I think we have work to do around how we hear and respond to complaints of racism because I think that sends a big signal to our community around how committed we actually are and what our ability to actually affect change is. For example, how much power does a complainant have to have a more racially just environment compared to how much power does the union have to protect a respondent uh, or to maintain the status quo of hiring policies or, or things such as that. I mean, people are watching for things like that. And then the third thing that I would say is, I'd really encourage us not just in this faculty but across the university to think about the ways in which we are or are not an actual learning organization. We are an educational institution, but I don't think that automatically means we are a learning organization where there is, you know, a climate of being open to being challenged and giving and receiving collegial, growth-oriented, constructive, change-focused feedback, I think particularly when it comes to anti-racism, there is a ton of fear and I think we need to move past that culture of fear to one of expectation
2: and growth. Thank you for that. So, you're now taking on this position of Vice Dean, Indigenous Health, Social Justice and Mm Anti-Racism at the Rady Faculty of Health Sciences. Now, maybe your dean doesn't want me to say this to you, but but if you had unlimited budget, (laughs) what opportunities would you help create?
0: Yes. I'm fortunate with my current dean, (laughs) actually, and I'm sure with the incoming dean as well to have had such a supportive relationship. So if I had unlimited budget uh, and I would be focused on our faculty here, what I would really want to invest in, and maybe there would be an opportunity for a partnership-based funding approach where we bring some to the table and the government brings some to the table. It would be really focused on how do we strengthen and operationalize our partnership with the clinical service delivery organizations in ways that actually promote that anti-racist climate change In our clinical learning environments as well. Obviously, there's a win-win there. One of the things I didn't mention before is how expensive racially unequal care is, so this is really key to the sustainability of the healthcare system. When we think about how the impact of racism influences and puts racialized healthcare workforce at higher risk for burnout, especially in our current context, there's a win there. I think some of the specific things I would invest in is really Creating a whole bunch more resourced clinical educator positions. So we would have more anti-racist clinicians of multiple professions. This could really be interprofessional on the wards, providing clinical care, highlighting how to be an anti-racist provider, role modeling that. Holding the healthcare team to that standard, role modeling, giving and receiving feedback when it comes to anti-racist care. I think some resource clinical educators that are shared positions could be a real driving force. We could explore really robust, innovative, educational series and venues and and modalities. One of the examples that I have seen are like these um, asynchronous but team-based cohort Mm -hmm learnings online where you do your learning journey you come up with a plan uh, of how you want your team to change or try an intervention and this is all part of your cohort learning journey I think something like that could really work well in anti-racism healthcare, and health professional education and we could even have a series of small grants that teams could access to trial these anti-racist interventions. I think there is opportunity in our partnerships with CHI, which is again, partnership with government Research Manitoba Shared Health already to strengthen the data infrastructure to support all of this work. So I would really focus that investment on a partnership-based approach to changing the climate of the clinical learning environment to be more anti-racist.
2: Thank you for that. You know, you've, you've given us a lot to think about. And, um, uh, you know, I think, I think that, that these are ideas that will strengthen our province and I, I know will strengthen our, our health care system. So just before we close, just wondering if there's anything else maybe I haven't asked you that you think is important that our listeners should hear.
0: The one thing that maybe I'll close off with is this. We have this spectrum of community members when it comes to how they think about racism and anti-racism, right? And what I would love to see is that we are having more people who are committed to this work, not from fear of being called racist or seeming racist, but because of their love and respect for the full humanity and full human rights of Black and Indigenous and other racialized people. That is the value base and motivation I would love to see us working from.
2: Marsha, thank you for that. I've, I've I've loved this conversation, and I think we we really do we truly need leaders like you, who understand the impact racism has not just on our healthcare system but on our mm-hmm. whole society, and who are committed to being part of the solution. And your big idea ideas, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and and the work you're doing at the Rady faculty of health sciences and across our province is really critical to tackling this systemic crisis and ultimately saving lives. And, and as you've said, improving health outcomes. Thank you so much for this discussion, for your outstanding contributions. And, and I'm, I'm looking forward to continuing to work with you and having you continue to challenge us to be better. Thank you. Thanks, Michael.
1: Thank you so much for listening to another episode of What's the Big Idea? with University of Manitoba President and Vice-Chancellor, Michael Benaroche. Be sure to watch this space for our next episode, featuring Canada Research Chair in Queer, Community and Diversity Education and Associate Professor in the Faculty of Education at UM, Dr. Robert Mitzi.
2: My big idea is that we've got to start changing the way in which we do. Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, or EDI. We need to start looking deeper into how the systems and behaviours and practices in workplaces need to change and become much deeper than what we have attempted in the past.
1: That's all for now. Thank you for listening and be sure to visit umanitoba.ca to learn more about this leading research university and its global impact.